This is no time to celebrate. Birthdays have been put on hold. Graduation is canceled. Confirmation has dropped off the table. I have a friend who just had a baby last night. There's no surprise visits to the hospital. There's no welcome home party. This isn't a time to celebrate. What do you have to celebrate anyway? You're stuck at home. There's a virus that we all know is out there, and we really, really hope it's not in our house and waiting its two weeks to rear its ugly, deadly head. This is not a time to celebrate. I mean, the world looks like it's in complete chaos, that no one is in control. It certainly seems now more than ever that God isn't even in control. We are looking for little glimpses of God in the midst of all of this. And we catch one, a glimpse that is, in Matthew 21, where we find Jesus celebrating. And it's a strange thing for Jesus to celebrate at this point because he's looking ahead just a couple of days to his own death and resurrection. It's a strange, and the, the context it makes it even stranger. He knew that on his way into Jerusalem. This very trip to Jerusalem in Matthew's ni- Matthew 19 and 20, he pulls his disciples aside and tells them that he will be betrayed, that he'll be executed. So historically, it doesn't seem like the right time to celebrate. And yet we've chosen this passage to talk about at this time, a, a time when it doesn't seem right to celebrate in our history, either. So why would we? Why would he celebrate? Why would we celebrate? The answer to that is what we need to talk about today. And it's an answer that will bring you hope even when loss is inevitable. To get a picture of what happened on the first Palm Sunday, a We've had that name for this Sunday for a long time, and I think you'll see why when we read from Matthew. But Matthew is one of Jesus' original disciples, one of the twelve, a man who sometimes went by his Hebrew name, Levi, but he wrote down his eyewitness account of what happened, and he helps us to understand the context around this march, this parade into Jerusalem. See, the city this center, both of the Jewish political world, but also the Jewish religious world, was busting at the seams as people streamed in from all over the world to celebrate a huge festival, the festival of Passover. In fact, the city was so full that historians of the day tell us that regularly Jerusalem would spill out over the walls of the city into the valley and the hills to the east of Jerusalem. They would be filled with people setting up camp in their tents. These crowds, masses of people were becoming a powder keg of energy as they aligned themselves with one of two sides of what had become a growing tension. On one side of the tension was Jesus. 
He was curing incurable diseases. He was raising the dead to life. He was forgiving sins that only God could forgive with a word. He taught with authority, honesty, directness, and integrity. People glommed onto him. The crowds surrounded him. And as they listened to him, they began to question everything they had been taught before then. That was one side. On the other side, the religious elite of the day, a group we know as the Pharisees. And it was their disciples, their followers, who were streaming away from them and going towards Jesus. It was the death and the illnesses that they had used to leverage their position of authority over the people of Israel that were being cured. It was the sin that they had created complicated concoctions to forgive that were wiped clean with a word from Jesus. They were losing power and control and influence. And they blamed Jesus. And it's in the midst of all of that that Matthew records for us this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, setting up this tension and building that tension until it exploded on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. And as we read these words from Matthew, I want you to consider two questions, kind of keep them in mind. And you're really, they're one question looking at two sides of the coin. I want you looking from the outside in and then from the inside out. The first question I want you to think about is, based on the crowds, what would you expect to find in the middle? Who would you expect to find it there? And the second question is, based on the one in the middle, what would you expect to find in the crowds? I want you to keep those in mind. As we read from Matthew chapter 21, here's what is written for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king has come to you. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd appeared or spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's start by looking at the crowd. They roll out the red carpet, at least the first century Roman world version of the red carpet. They take off their cloaks and they throw them on the ground. Understand what this is. In a world where clothes are not made to be thrown away, the cloak represented a valuable investment for people, especially for people who were traveling, 
who were sleeping in tents or maybe under the stars, who were on the road. The cloak was their bedroll. It was their sleeping bag, their blanket, their raincoat, their shield against any bad weather. It was incredibly important to everybody who could afford it to own one. And they threw them on the ground so that Jesus and his donkey could walk over them. They were speaking volumes, telling everyone around them that this valuable piece of clothing was less important, less valuable than even the hooves of the donkey upon which Jesus rode. And those who couldn't afford cloaks scaled 100-foot palm trees and cut down branches and threw them on the ground, used these branches as symbols of peace and of hope and of everlasting life. That's why they showed show up again in Revelation 7. This welcome is a welcome fit for a king, for battle-hardened champion who had fought the enemy and saved his people from impending threat. Is that what we find? In the midst of all of this, do we see an armor-clad warrior A prince with a crown on his head, a shield on his arm, and a sword in his hand? Not at all. We don't find at all what we would expect to find in the middle of such a triumphant parade. What are you hoping to find? Who are you looking for? A president to lead us out of this crisis? A medical innovator? who will come up with a miracle drug and save us all a check in the mail that will erase your worries. I think if you looked deeply at what you were looking for, you and I would need more. Someone who could be more. Someone who could do more. And so let's look at the center of this parade and let's see who we find. As unexpected as he might be. It's Jesus. Riding on a donkey. Not a war stallion. Not a man surrounded by an army. He doesn't even have his own armor. And he's surrounded by fishermen. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. Ordinary people. People who had been dismissed from polite society. And they sang. They sang and they danced. They sang His praises. Listen again to the song that they sing. It's towards the end there. They say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna, a word that we use for praise and joy and exaltation, a a lifting of the Spirit to God, but a word that originally meant something very different. People who said this word were not singing praises. They were crying out. They were praying. Because Hosanna originally meant help, please. Is there a more fitting prayer for us? As we listen to yet another news report of escalating infected and dying. Is there a more fitting prayer for us as we answer another phone call from another scared 
family member? Is there a better answer? As the world around us is turned on its head, help, please. It's our cry as prom is canceled, graduation is canceled, family vacations and schedules are totally erased. Help, please. I am scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know what things will look like in a day, let alone a week or a month or a year. Help, please. Hosanna. And you know that a check won't cover this. No president can fix it. That a miracle cure, while it might take away this reason for fear, will not erase fear totally. You and I need a real Savior. Someone who can get down into this muck and sit with us. And who will remind us as often as we need to hear it, I've beat all this. It didn't seem like the time to celebrate. Loss was inevitable. Just five days after this march into Jerusalem, people would be crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. We'll remember that in our Thursday and Friday services this week. And we'll watch as they march Him to a city, to a hill outside of the city. As they lay their hands on Him to strip Him of His clothes and to nail Him to a cross so that He could face the wrath of hell, it did not seem like the right time to celebrate when the battle had not even begun. How could He? How could He celebrate? Because the victory was guaranteed. There was no doubt. There never had been. Even in the moments when our first parents walked away from God, walked on the path toward hell and away from God, there was never any doubt in God's mind that the path to heaven would be won and freed by the blood of His own Son. There was never any doubt the, the victory was guaranteed. And it was just a matter of time, and that time had now come. His victory was guaranteed, and it is yours. It's your victory through faith. That's what faith is. It's not wishful thinking or a spiritual roll of the dice. It is the lasso with which God ropes us and connects us to Jesus' death and resurrection, to His victory. It's how God makes His victory our victory. It's a victory that has been won. And, and it means that one of His dearest friends would betray Him. Victory that is guaranteed and the bite of the whip would tear his back apart. His victory is guaranteed and they would suspend him feet in the air pinned to a couple pieces of lumber with nails. His victory was guaranteed and 
God would turn his back on Jesus, treating him as though he were the one who looked for other saviors. As if he were the one who hoped that money or a person or a cure would free him from fear and and shame. His victory was guaranteed. And I know that many of you tuning in and watching us today, I know that you're not sure about any of this. About church, faith, or God, or heaven, or hell. You're tuning in today, crossing your fingers that you'll hear something that might help you get through this next week. And so I want you to hear this. Loss is inevitable, but it does not have to be eternal. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Him as the one who carried the weight of your sin on His own back so that you might carry His perfection and His victory. His victory will be your victory and it will be eternal. Your victory is guaranteed only by the one who rode into Jerusalem so humbly that He sat on a donkey Your victory is guaranteed only by the one who deserved all the praises of that parade and more. Your victory is guaranteed by the one who hears your cry, help, please, and reaches out with a nail-scarred hand and grabs a hold of you, pulls you to himself, and will never let you go. there's nothing that can diminish that victory. No change in schedule. No canceled parties. No grief or pain or fear. Your victory is in the one who is the only one who has the gravity to apply his victory to you. So no matter what happens, no matter what loss might be in the future because of this virus or something completely unrelated, know that your victory is guaranteed. You can't do or say or experience anything that will separate you from His victory for you. No mourning, no grief, no virus or fear, no death, or sorrow. Nothing. That's His promise in Romans chapter 8. And I want to leave you with these words. As we go into this next week and we watch Jesus face inevitable loss. As we go into this week, as you go into this week facing inevitable loss of your own. I want these words to ring in your ears that victory is guaranteed. Your victory is guaranteed because Jesus has won it already for you. Listen to His promise in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. 
Amen.